I'm your host, Paul Wicker, and this is The PPC Show, brought to you by AdStage. This week, we met Samantha Kerr from Hannapin. She is the CRO manager. And for those of you who have no idea what CRO is because you're paid search or paid social folks, then this introductory to CRO and some landing page tests is exactly what you need to get up to speed. We record the PPC show most Tuesdays at 10 a.m. out of our AdStage headquarters. You can pick up our podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you want all the news and ad tech, head over to blog.adstage.io. Enjoy the episode. Um, and we're on with Samantha Kerr, who's the CRO manager at Hannapin. Uh, and what are you talking about at Hero Conference? I am talking about conversion rate optimization, but more specifically, um, really how to focus um, on your users and tailoring your testing and your landing pages to um, your customers specifically. Is it your first time speaking there? It is. First time speaking anywhere, actually. Are you super nervous? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm sure you'll do great. It's, you know, the marketing crowd are very forgiving, so... Right, right. Um, and then I know you are a, a recent, some, somewhat recent graduate of IU, Indiana University, mm-hmm. Bloomington. Um, did yep. you ever think you were going to go work in marketing? I did not, no. When I went to school, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be in the tech field of some sort. And my really my main focus was kind of web design. And when I ended up in the PPC industry, yeah, it was a shocker because I had no idea what PPC was. Well, I saw you got a degree in informatics and computing. So is that uh, is that computer science or is it slightly different? Um, it's a little bit different. You get kind of an intro to computer science, um, kind of a little bit of background there. But for the most part, it's a wide range of just tech in general. And then you can you have a focus that you can, you know, like a cognate. So my focus was telecom. You can utilize that however you want, but really kind of a broad degree. And then you, so you were doing like web design. So did you think you were going to do a lot of like website creation and stuff like that? That was my hope was to really dive into the creation of, of web pages and whatnot. But you're only taught so much in school and everything that I looked for required like five years of experience. So um, little did I know that getting into the PPC industry was kind of a step in the door and now focusing on CRO kind of led me down the right path. Yeah, I was going to say, since you're doing, uh, focusing a lot on testing and landing page, uh, landing page testing, you can use a lot of those skills probably. And then if you do want to go back to a more technical role, you've got a very, probably the most yeah. practical example, because you get to see like you build something or change something and then measure the results rather than the traditional experience of like, you know, go build a website and it's a not necessarily like so clear cause and effect relationship. So that's, that's a nice approach yeah. to website design. Yeah, absolutely. I'd- it gives me kind of that other, the other half of the knowledge that you need. So I obviously have the tools to build something, but now I know like how to actually build it, what it should look like and, and those sorts of things. So it's really cool. And I have to mention, uh, you know, we have a lot of friends over at Hannapin and I asked them what makes you famous at Hannapin. And they said you have a unusually high uh, affinity for David Pumpkins. Oh my gosh. No. So if you want the backstory there, um, have you seen that Saturday Night Live skit? Uh, about 10 minutes ago, I just watched it with Tom Hanks. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, I don't watch Saturday Night Live, and my brother introduced it to me, that skit specifically, and my nieces, who were eight and nine at the time, got obsessed with it. And so my niece had to disguise her turkey 
um, for Thanksgiving so that it wouldn't get eaten. And so she disguised her turkey as David Pumpkins. Excellent. So that's probably where that came from. So if you haven't seen the skit, you can go watch it. It's it super silly, and I just stared at it like, this is strange, but I could see how after you watch it like 50 times, it just becomes addictive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you are the CRO manager over there. Um, what exactly is a CRO manager? Like what, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? Yep, absolutely. So our clients can choose to opt into our CRO program. And so what that allows them to receive is basically our services in terms of landing page testing, user experience, um, feedback, um, whether it be heat mapping, user testing videos, et cetera. Um, and so they are bucketed into our department. Um, so they have their account manager that'll manage their day-to-day -day PPC. And then I would manage their day-to-day um, -day CRO. So on a daily basis, that basically means setting up the tests, monitoring them, and then setting up any type of user feedback that we need. And then monitoring all of that, gathering all of that data and putting it all into um, presentations. And are you actually making changes to client landing pages or do you have to coordinate with their teams? Yeah, so we uh, utilize a platform called Visual Website Optimizer. So we actually have the capability of um, just making changes on the front end to their site. And then the clients don't actually have to make any background back end changes until the test is won. And then at that point, they would implement it um, within their site. But we can make the changes on the front end really easily with um, our platform. And do you have any examples of some recent tests like or things that you test when you make these changes? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, um, just because it was the, the last results I just pulled, we are testing a call to action on the home page, which um, you would think is more of a smaller change because it's one button. Um, user lands on the page and they're presented with a call to action in the hero image. It said get started. And so what we said to the, the client was, you know, that's really broad. What are users getting started with? Let's make that more direct so they know why they're going to submit their information. So we're actually testing get help today, and that's increased. They have four different conversion options, whether it be form fills, chats, phone calls, um, and it's increasing conversions across the board. So even like small changes like that, you know, can have can have big impacts. So. And there's a bit of a knock on, so it's very similar to what um, some growth teams would do internally, right? A lot of times growth teams are responsible for making like small tweaks to landing pages or to kind of onboarding experiences to try to increase conversion. Uh, and maybe six months to a year ago, it was like everybody was doing that, like growth hacking bro, you know, change all the colors and, you know, change all the call to actions. I feel like the pendulum swung a little bit where now people are like, you know, um, I questioning how impactful those types of changes are. Um, right. Since you're, you're doing a lot of this and you're like in the trenches of executing these, um, A, is that trend like valid? Do you feel like people are um, moving in that direction of saying like, oh, maybe let's like change copy less or I don't know, am I just making all this up and are people still very no, much no. interested? Yeah, so we definitely hear a lot of that from clients in terms of we want to focus on big changes. We don't want to focus on these smaller changes. And so um, it's definitely a valid argument, but what we always say is, um, one, we don't know what impact it's going to have. So even though it's a small change, we could see a large um, percentage increase in your conversions. A lot of times if it's um, lower volume or a smaller page, so say you just have one landing page, there's not much to it, 
yeah, a smaller change is going to have less impact because overall they're not going to notice that smaller change in the whole scope of things. Um, whereas a bigger change, so for example, we have um, one landing page that we're testing. It's really one page above the fold. There's no scrolling to it. We're actually testing adding two sections of content to that page to just make it a little bit more, a little longer and more engaging. Um, so in those instances, yeah, we we might we might see bigger impacts with bigger changes, but we don't want to just say let's not focus on those smaller changes because if it's necessary for your users, that's why that's why a big focus of ours is really getting feedback from the users. If it's a small change that's gonna help them and that's what they're wanting, then we need to test it. And how often are you bringing the kind of test ideas to the client or the other way around? Yeah, absolutely. So we kick off the relationship with a lot of analysis. Um, and with that, we kind of build our testing queue. So from all the user behavior, all of the data, we kind of build our queue. And then from there, if we're learning, you know, we're learning things as we're testing. But if, you know, another test pops up, while we're testing, you know, we'll add that to the queue. But about, so then we present the client about four to five tests initially because we don't want to overwhelm them. And that gives us a handful to talk through and really pick pick and choose from. And then we, we try to rotate on a monthly basis um, for our tests. So of course, we tell the clients all the time, it's going to depend on traffic, on significance when we conclude, but our goal is a month. So, um, and then, you know, we kind of max out at two months. We don't want to run a test longer than that um, if we're not seeing results. So we come to the client with new test proposals once we're ready to conclude a test and kind of just get approvals on, you know, are we, are we okay to launch this test? So um, it's kind of ongoing. And how many, um, I don't know, conversions or how many impressions or how many visitors do you want to see to a landing page before you're ready to kind of test it? Yeah, so that's a really great question, and um, I'm going to go with the typical answer of it depends, but um, because it definitely does depend on um, the industry, you know, how much traffic in general are um, your landing pages getting, because sometimes we'll have small clients that only get um, a couple hundred, you know, visitors a month versus large clients who are thousands of visitors, and so we always just like to make sure that the um, conversions are um, in the double digits. So, you know, we could have a client that has really small traffic. Um, so the conversions are going to be less, obviously, but we want to make sure those conversion numbers are in the double digits. And, and a lot of times clients will question, okay, well, if I'm low traffic, you know, it's going to take longer to gain significance of our testing results. So um, another thing we always bring up is the fact that we want to make sure, we say we might not reach significance by the end of that two-month mark. If we've consistently seen that we're seeing an increase in conversions, so we've never really seen, you know, the results flip-flop, we've never seen them neutralize, then we can confidently say, you know, that it's going to continue in that path. So, so we do get a lot of questions regarding that and kind of just conclusion overall because it definitely depends on the traffic that's being brought in and that sort of thing. And when you say double digits, you mean per day? So like 10 per day minimum? Um, so overall, so um, because we do have very tiny clients, so we might have, you know, 15 and 20 conversions for a three to four week period. Um, and so if it's in, you know, the single digits, that's not enough conversions for us to make any kind of confident, even if it, we've seen 
consistent results. That's just, that's hardly any conversion. So um, we just tell a client because, because we are splitting the traffic in half, we're going to see the conversion split between two different variations. We want to make sure um, that through the, the runtime, that three to four weeks of a test, we're at least in the double digits for our numbers. Got you. Um, that would help. That helps us validate the significance because if we're in single digits, then we're automatically going to see probably 90% statistical significance just because of the nature of low numbers. So, um, kind of multiple different things go into play there. And then you mentioned doing some copy changes on like call to action buttons. Are there any other kind of common tactics that you find yourself testing? Yeah, so a lot of times um, we'll focus on social proof, um, especially with, um, well, really in general. So a couple of our tests right now, actually, whether it be testimonials or trust markers or um, company logos that maybe the client's working with, making sure those are visible and, and known to the users, but also, um, you know, that they're recognizing it. So that may be on the page, but we may see within user feedback and, you know, recordings and stuff that users aren't actually noticing it. So making sure that those are being noticed and recognized um, so it can influence the, the journey. But then on e-commerce, we're always um, focusing on the checkout process. So making sure that um, the checkout process is perceived as secure. So we might not be testing the actual security of it because that requires a lot of backend stuff, obviously. But just the perception that it is secure. So whether it's adding a background to the payment information or um, what have you, just giving them that perception that, that the process is secure we've seen positive uplifts and conversion rate multiple times. So you mentioned a tool that you use to do the landing page testing. Um, what other kind of tools are in your stack? Yep. So we have a heat mapping tool. We utilize crazy egg, but you can also use VWO, which is our um, AV testing platform. So a couple different heat mapping tools. We utilize Hotjar for user feedback, um, whether it be polls or just getting their initial reaction you know, are they happy about the page? Are they angry? And what's causing these reactions? Um, and then also we can, utilizing Hotjar, we can see just mouse clicks. So we can track over a period of time and see where are users actually going on the page. Um, those are pretty valuable. And then um, the other big tool that we utilize is user testing um, or try my UI to create a series of tasks, have the users, have our, some random users complete the tasks and see how easy it is see what kind of things they run into. Um, so those are the main main platforms we use to, to gather data. And then, of course, we utilize Google Analytics very heavily. And the last tool you said was Try My UI? Mm -hmm. That's a great name. <laughs> uh, I think we should use that. Uh, we build a lot of UI around here, and I've never heard of, a, uh, I've never heard of them. Yeah, um, it's um, pretty, it's, smaller i think they're just kind of getting into the swing of things but it's very very similar to user testing um just you know very similar where you can target um users based on demographic and all sorts of things um, and then give them tasks so very similar to user testing and what about your coordination with the paid search or social teams do you, do you need to coordinate to like increase traffic or send traffic to certain pages yeah, absolutely. So we do a lot of coordinating with um, the account managers on the PPC side um, and social too. We're getting more involved with social um, to make sure we're analyzing, you know, the creative on the social aspect. But 
Um, we do coordinate with the account managers right from the get-go when we launch the relationship. We want to make sure that we know where they're sending traffic. Um, are we looking at the right URLs and are we seeing the same things on our end in terms of data, especially with analytics? Um, are we seeing the same things that they're seeing? So um, we'll, we loop them into those conversations and then also just letting them know, you know, what tests are going on because um, we have a pretty um, involved ad testing um, schedule, I don't know what you want to call it. So we want to make sure that they're not necessarily ad testing at the same time that we're landing page testing on the same URLs um, in case that were to um, cause conflict. And then that way they know just what we're doing. So there's a lot of back and forth, making sure we're both seeing the same data. And also um, if they are making any types of changes, whether it be they're directing traffic away from a certain URL, they're changing the URL, we obviously need to be in the loop there. So um, definitely a lot of um, collaboration. It's interesting because you often have the search teams or just the acquisition teams, you know, sending traffic and then you have the website team or the growth team trying to convert the traffic. And there's always a little bit of tension, right, around the, the acquisition folks are looking at the, the website saying, why aren't you converting? And the folks on the website team are saying, hey, this traffic's crap. Why are you sending scrappy traffic? So it's interesting right. that you have you kind of, for some clients, cover both. So you kind of uh, can't point your finger at the <laughs> at the paid search team and they can't point their finger at you and say, well, the website's not converting because you've brought that all into like a single program, which is uh, which is nice. I think it's a nice alignment for both you and the client. And it also prevents the old fight about, you know, how many conversions did we get? And, you know, one team is saying 20 and the other team saying 200 and you're just scratching your head. Yep, absolutely. And it it also helps when they run into problems, they can easily shoot us an email and say, hey, is there anything that you're seeing that I'm not seeing or anything that you're doing, you know, on the landing pages that could be causing this? So, um, and definitely having us all in one house makes it really easy because we can just, you know, go right to each other and talk to each other. Whereas if it were two separate, whether it be two separate agencies or, or whatever, um, makes it a lot easier. And kind of a random question, but there's a lot of talk about ABM or account-based marketing where, you know, we're starting to send different messages to folks throughout the funnel, you know, so you have your like brand messages, hey, have you heard of Ford? And then you have mm -hmm. your like, oh, you're buying a car, go test drive. And then there's like ones for, you know, hey, you, you test drove the car three weeks ago, save $300 on your floor mats or something like that. So in the, in the acquisition space, a lot of folks are talking about this concept of account-based marketing where you like pick an account and then you follow it through the life cycle and target. And I remember a long time ago, we were in, on the website side, we were talking about responsive websites and dynamic content where we were going to see who the visitor was and like change the website. So if you went for the test drive, you'd show up and it would say like, you know, get your $300 off your floor mats if you buy right now at this dealership. Um, do you see any of these kind of responsive, uh, not really responsive, but dynamic content concepts coming into websites? And are you ever testing those types of approaches? Right. So um, kind of related to that, a lot of times um, clients will either come in or come in with a bunch of landing pages or ask us, hey, should we create a bunch of landing pages and target them all individually? So based on what the users are searching. So um, a lot of times they'll have, 
you know, 10 to 15 landing pages and very minimal copy will be changed, but they just want to direct that specific message. And a lot of times we tell them that that's a bad idea because you have way too many landing pages you're trying to manage when you can really just focus that in on one um, and really target the messaging so broad enough that it speaks to everyone, but also specific enough so they realize they're being spoken to. So that's kind of one end of it. Um, but to more specifically answer your question, it's something that we're actually starting to dive a little bit deeper into, um, especially for those clients who come with those kinds of questions. Um, we're actually going to start testing um, dynamic keyword insertion with one of our clients. We haven't yet, but just um, you know, dy dynamically inserting certain copy depending on what they're searching for to eliminate the need for a number of different pages. Um, but also um, another thing that's kind of another strategy that's been brought up that we haven't, we've been talking about, we, we haven't necessarily implemented it yet is education based. So for example, looking for an online school, users may be at the point where they're just um, looking in general, they just want more information. Um, so that's one stage of the funnel, whereas they, they might be deep in the funnel and they're ready to enroll. So trying to speak to those two audiences differently, we would give them two different types of pages. You know, one could be downloading a form or downloading a um, like guide that gives you information about the school versus the other one would obviously be an enrollment page. So um, that's been also a strategy that's been talked about on how to target them differently with PPC and, you know, the keywords, but so that we can deliver them the two different landing pages. So definitely something that's in the works, but not, not really anything that's been implemented or tested as of yet. Well, and I think there's some, there's some recent news that overlaps a bit with this topic in that uh, LinkedIn announced earlier in the week that they are rolling out lead gen ads and I'm getting the name wrong. It's probably not lead gen ads. They probably call them something similar. Uh, but essentially putting a form directly into the sponsored update on LinkedIn. So when you're in LinkedIn, you see an ad and you can click a button like sign up for the webinar or download the white paper. But instead of taking you to the website, actually just throw some fields right into the ad. You submit them and hit send. And what's interesting is both Twitter and Facebook have these same type of ads, which everyone thought was going to like dominate when they came out and everybody was super excited about them. Twitter actually just deprecated theirs and where they announced deprecation late last year. And I think just past Wednesday was like the deadline where they all went dark. So they decided to take lead gen off of the ad unit and let it live on the website. And with Facebook, we saw a lot of like initial interest because we support Facebook uh, as an ad platform. And then it seemed to quickly kind of die down as people went back to sending traffic to their website. I'm guessing you're biased on where you'd rather see the website traffic go. Right. But, uh, do you have any just comment on this trend of trying to force the conversion on the ad unit versus the website? Right. I think it's definitely interesting. I think where the problem lies and probably why we're not seeing a ton of success is just the fact that users need content and they need context before before they're willing to give you any type of information. So if the ad is great at giving them all the information they need, then they're gonna be more willing to give their information without having gone to a website. And and they may prefer that because they, you know, that's one step removed. They don't have to click on the link and go somewhere else um, to, to submit their information. But I would say that's kind of probably the biggest thing is just, are you giving them enough content and context to feel comfortable giving their information. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, in most cases, you would think no, because <laughs> you're basically getting right. a, uh, you know, an ad. So you're getting a few yeah. lines of text and maybe an image. <clears throat> um, I did want to ask you earlier, and I forgot to, when you're, you know, you talked about doing analysis of a client's uh, kind of website to come up with some ideas for tests. What goes into the analysis and what, what is kind of the, a mini version of what you would present to them? Right. So um, we've recently just broken it up a little bit. So we used to onboard a client and kind of do it all in one in one go. And we realized that if we want to dive deeper into each different analysis, we needed to split it up. So um, we kind of deliver it over a handful of months. But um, basically what goes into that is a heuristic analysis kind of starts it all off. And that is just simply us going to the site using what we know based on the industry they're in and our experience in the CRO industry, what kind of feedback do we have for them right away, just going to the site. So that's kind of how we started off. And then, and then we dive into analytics. So we really want to know who is it that's actually coming to your site and where are they going on your site? Um, and so that can, we can, it can lead down to a lot of different rabbit holes um, because there's obviously a lot to learn from analytics. Um, so that really, can be a small analysis or a big analysis. So it really depends on the site um, and how much of the site, um, you know, they utilize in paid search. So that's kind of the, the big kickoff um, analysis is really just diving into analytics. And then based on what we learn in analytics, we pull those heat maps that I talked about um, and the user recordings or user testing videos and kind of use all that as building blocks. So, okay, we've noticed that there's some red flags in analytics. These landing pages, you know, you're sending so much traffic, but they don't have, they're not bringing in a lot of revenue or, you know, they don't have high conversion rates. And then see if utilizing those heat maps and those um, recordings and feedback, do we now know why that's a problem? And then we can optimize based on what we find there. So that's a big part of it, um, which I know we kind of already touched on, but then another big part of it is um, congruency and competitors. So we'll dive into the PPC account work with the account manager, um, pull some of the top ads and keywords, and really just go through that experience as if we were a user. So utilizing that keyword, that ad, and seeing what page they're being taken to, and just see how that experience flows from the moment someone starts to search something to where they land. Um, and that's all based on expectations. And are they seeing the same thing throughout their entire journey? So if I'm searching for you know a pair of red heels online, is the page that I'm being sent to via the ad, does that even have red heels on it? And and what kind of benefits and information is being presented to me in the ad that's maybe not on the landing page? Um, so we look, you know, throughout the entire journey and then we do the same thing for competitors. So I'm going to take that same keyword I used, see what competitor ads are next to our ads, visit, you know, and look at that ad. What do they have in that ad that may be pulling users to click on theirs, um, and then how is their landing page structured? Just compare our experiences and see, you know, where do we have a leg up and where can we improve? This sounds like it takes a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> so how many clients can you possibly manage uh, at once? I can't even begin to answer that because it's a huge battle that we're actually fighting right now. Um, just figuring out what that number is. Yeah, for, you know, so I've been in the agency uh, paid search social space for like ever, and there's always this account under management 
conversation you have, right? Because as an agency, to make money, you need to, you know, manage as many accounts as possible. And of course, your client services or account management team is the ones who have to try to manage all these accounts at the same time. So there's always this natural like tension between can we manage more? And then, uh, you know, you want to be able to give a good level of service and quality, which means managing less. So for paid search and paid social, like there's a, a few models, right? Like high scale models where you have like somebody who's client facing and someone who's just kind of pulling more of the levers and you can get, you know, a team of two to manage somewhere around like 80 accounts, which is insane. But for those like scale agencies who are doing like doctors and plumbers and lawyers and they have very simple accounts, they have just right. automated reporting. And then, of course, you have like uh, whoever's managing Apple, right? And they probably have 10 people just doing paid search and 10 people right. doing social. So I'm just curious on how this in the CRO space, the model is starting to shake out, because I'd say you guys are pretty early in terms of like bringing this to market as an agency service. Yeah, I would say it definitely, um, like I said, it's a question that we've been trying to answer for the last couple of months now. So it's a big topic around here as to, you know, what's our cap? How many can we handle before before that service is just, you know, we're not able to give a, a quality just because we of our workload. So, um, but it also, um, it, what makes it difficult is we have a range of clients. So um, we have some who are, you know, paying for our full services. So we do all of those analysis. And then we have some where it's just strictly, you know, A-B testing. Um, so those are easier to manage because we can, you know, figure out what it is that we're going to test, set up the test and kind of let it run its course. Um, so it does, they don't require as much work. Um, whereas, you know, these bigger accounts require those different analyses. And so that's one reason we kind of split up. So we kind of deliver one section, one type of analysis each month. So one month it might be heat maps and user testing videos. The next month would be that congruency, congruency and competitor analysis that I talked about. So, um, so we try to split it up that way. Um, but of course, you know, as we gain more clients, that workload just increases. So um, right now we're averaging uh, myself and our other CRO manager um, averaging probably 10 accounts each. Um, that's on average. And that's with other things taken into account, depending on the size of the account and whatnot. But um Definitely a conversation that I'm glad was brought up because it's a struggle and we've been talking about it for the last, like I said, couple of months and we don't have an answer yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's maybe the why it's so interesting because in the paid, like I was saying, paid search and social, we pretty much know how to cookie cutter uh, account management if you just want to run a Facebook campaign. Uh, but what you're doing is not is not yet cookie cuttered for sure. No, uh, right. Yeah. And is it, uh, do you feel like it's the thing that everybody wants? Like, are you getting a lot of clients that you've had on paid search and social? And it feels like, man, we're just, everybody wants to get in on this. Or do you feel like it's kind of that growth curve where everybody was super excited and now maybe it's starting to like cool down a bit? Yeah, I think it's definitely, it definitely fluctuates. So we have, um, I would say it's definitely not a solid curve. It's bit really up and down. Um, because we'll have one month where we get four new clients who want CRO and then we'll have one month where we don't have any. Um, so I would say definitely it varies. And, you know, as we've started to introduce this um, user experience um, model, we'll see how that changes. But 
it's, it definitely just depends. And a lot of clients, you know, some clients will come to us and say, well, we already have our own in-house CRO team. So, so we don't really need your services. So we also have those instances, but I'd say right now it definitely fluctuates um, for the most part. Awesome. Well, I think maybe after listening, there's a few clients out there who are going to want to use your CRO service. <laughs> it's a blessing and a curse. Right. Um, so there's one or two items in the news I did want to talk about, and I know it's um, uh, they are totally unrelated to CRO or even <laughs> paid search and social. So bear with me. Um, but before okay. I do, uh, I know I want to remember to um, point out that you are speaking, and I don't know if the name of your session is still called Tailor Made Landing Pages to Custom Fit Your yep. Audience. Okay. Yep. Um, so April 18th to 20th, Hero Conference in LA, which is run by you guys, right? You put on yep. HeroConf at Hennepin. Yep. Um, if you want to see Samantha speak, you can go see her speak and learn even more about landing pages. Is there anything you think we didn't talk about, about landing page, uh, I guess, tailor, tailor making your landing pages that we should cover? Um, no, I think we kind of really touched on um, really the basics in terms of, you know, how do you do that? And that is all of those user behavior analysis that I talked about in terms of um, figuring out, you know, what your users want. But I would say the only other point to add is the reason for testing. So, you know, you gather all this data, you set up these tests. Um, and you might see how users behave on other sites within your industry, you know, competitors and whatnot. But you're never going to know if it's going to positively affect your users until you test it out. And so you don't want to go implement it because you could really hurt your site. You could, you know, lose a ton of conversions because just because the behavior of your users is saying that they want a certain thing changed or, you know, they need clarity here doesn't necessarily mean we have the right answer and the change that we're going to make they'll accept. So um, a big kind of example is a really outdated site that, you know, you can tell is old. It hasn't been modernized. If you go and try to modernize that site, you're probably going to end up hurting conversion rates. So you don't want to do a complete site redesign just so that you can bring it to, to the century. Um, and I just speak from experience because we've made we've done tons of tests on sites like that where we we say, oh, yeah, we can do this. It should increase clarity and really just make things that much more smooth. And it backfires because they're just used to the way the current site is built. And so they don't really want to accept those bigger changes. So um, just emphasizing that there is a reason to test. And that's because even if you have all this user data, you find out what your users want, you know, the solution you have might not be the solution they're looking for. That's great advice. I think it applies to a lot of different things too. I mean, in product, uh, certainly if you ask people what they want, they tell you one thing. And then if, uh, you know, you actually implement something that they said they want, then they don't use it or they don't use it the way that you expect them to use it. Uh, so yeah. even, I mean, and that's funny if you like, just follow people complain about whatever product Twitter, right? Everybody's got an answer for how Twitter should like, you know, roll out some new feature and then they roll out a new feature and it like flops because no one uses it. Or when you use it, you realize it's not doing the thing you want it to do or there's trade-offs. So it's a, uh, I think that's a great point. That's pretty universal that you basically can't trust people. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, so the, the two stories I want to talk about that are just blowing up in the news. So we can't not talk about them. Um, 
One is kind of all this YouTube ad boycotting that's happening right now. So right now there's a lot of big brands that are basically saying, um, you know, we're not going to advertise on video, specifically YouTube, because my ads can show up on like some really questionable content like ISIS videos and like brutality videos and all kinds of crazy stuff. So the brands have been pulling back from YouTube and kind of really just making a big deal about it. Um, that's not really that surprising. Uh, the part that I'm kind of wondering about is whether like do brands are brands really surprised by it, I guess. Like did people were they actually surprised that their ads were showing up in all kinds of super spammy places or bad content and the agencies were all acting like very outraged and now boycotting or are they just realizing that there's public outcry that their ads are showing up on these like spammy sites or like Breitbart, you know, there's a big uh, movement from there's a, a group called Sleeping Giants on Facebook, which is like finding anybody who's advertising on Breitbart and screenshotting it and then putting it on Twitter and then basically like shaming the brand into taking down their ads, um, which you could argue is like a good or bad way of doing it, but it's very effective. They've had over 1,500 advertisers pull their advertising from brands that they don't or from sites they don't believe their brand kind of should represent or be associated with. Um, so in some ways it's like lighting a fire under them. So, but it just still, it like, I feel like a year ago, if you told me all this was happening, it's like, yeah, anyone advertising knows like your ads are going to show up in some like pretty like crappy places. It's just too hard to control. And now everyone's freaking out. Like they had no idea what was happening. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, it does kind of seem surprising because obviously the internet is huge and YouTube in general is huge. There's a lot out there. So to me, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if you know our videos were showing up somewhere where we didn't want them so that is i mean that's surprising to me i think finally i think brands uh, in one of the articles by digiday that wrote about it um they also made the point that it gives brands a lot of leverage right now that they didn't have against youtube and google to say hey we want you to do x y and z and we can kind of use this public outrage and this focus on the issue to say you have to handle kind of your filtering so that we can filter content. right uh, in fact yeah, that makes Facebook just launched a new um, kind of new product to allow people to do this. Um, if I can remember the name, that'd be great. Uh, they call it, well, they're calling them brand safety controls from Facebook. So essentially they let you do like in AdWords, you can do exclusion targeting, like exclude certain placements or websites if you're going to uh, target by placement. So Facebook essentially lets you do the same thing, but you can also just pick categories of stuff you don't want to be associated with. And mostly obvious stuff like gambling and, um, other things that are usually banned. Uh, but then they have one category called like controversial content. So even if it's not necessarily like, you know, good or bad, it's just controversial. So I guess if you don't want to show up on controversial stuff, you could avoid that now on Facebook. So the, that's some change. Huh. And then the other thing I want to point out was Facebook also announced. So maybe six months ago. So after Trump won and everybody freaked out, and then they said, you know, fake news is to blame and people are reading all this like made up stuff. And then a lot of people called out Facebook and said, look, you have a lot of fake news in Facebook and you're not doing anything about it because it's like all clickbait and, you know, people love clickbait. Um, and Zuckerberg was kind of like, well, we're just a tech company. We're not a media company. So, you know, sorry. And now he's really done a 180 and he's come back and said, no, in fact, uh, we do take it seriously and we do understand and value journalism and all that stuff. And they just joined a effort 
called the News Integrity Initiative. It's a, a backed with $14 million of funding that came from Facebook and the founder of Craig's, Craigslist, Craig Newmark, and a few others. Um, and really saying that they want to start to like do something uh, to try to help news you know, not die, uh, suffer <laughs> and protect journalism. So Facebook is, is starting to change their tune quite a bit, uh, between the brand protection stuff. And now also in terms of kind of trying to fight fake news. So for those people who are think Facebook should become a publisher of which there are many folks, uh, that's good news for you guys and gals. Um, okay. What do you think about fake news on Facebook? <laughs> It's pretty annoying. It's bad. The thing I hate most of all the kind of quote unquote fake news is the like the tabula and outbrain stuff that like string of uh, articles at the bottom of like legitimate news sites or even not legitimate news sites. But, you know, you read an article on the bottom. It's like, oh, also read. And it's always like, you know, this goalkeeper wondered why everyone was laughing until they found out this thing or, you know, whatever the <laughs> right, most. Yeah, yeah click baity headlines are and they're always like scams or like penny stocks or like supplements they're never they're never like real stuff um and they're like super spammy so i don't know why the media hasn't like freaked out on these things which are clearly posing as news stories which are clearly not but right and it's even more annoying when your friends are dumb enough to fall for all of it so then your feed gets filled with all of them right or if you click on one and then you're like so ashamed you're like oh my god i fell for one <laughs> right is, yeah it's like a slideshow of like you know 10 oscar winning movies from the past 20 years and it's like you know 30 slides with like 20 ads built in and you're like why right why did i click this um so that's that's the news uh, from this week at least the big headline so i just wanted to point that out um awesome if there's uh, any, if anybody has questions about CRO or they want to find you, can they find you on uh, Twitter or maybe the Hannapin website or something like that? Yep, my handle for Twitter is at Samantha underscore underscore Kerr, which is super annoying, but you know, one underscore is already taken, so um, and that's K E R R. All right, double underscore. I like it. That's a good uh, start. A trend. Uh, well, I like what was that? You like to start trends? I like to trick people. There you go. You are uh, you are spamming people's Twitter yeah. feeds? No, I don't know. <laughs> um, all right. So if you want to learn more about CRO, uh, find Samantha on Twitter or check her out at Hero Conference. And we will. We wish you best of luck. I think we're speaking there at stage as, as somebody on stage too. Maybe JD Prater, who used to be at, uh, at Half. Yeah. So you guys can hang out a little bit. If he's there, it might also be our founder, Sahil, who speaks of that quite a bit. So make sure you say hello. Awesome. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for coming on. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.